Welcome to NAB Digital Next. I'm Brad Carr, recording today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. And our guest today is Katrina Dow, the founder and CEO of Miko. Katrina is based in Belgium, heavily engaged in some great initiatives that we're going to talk about, and also ideally positioned right there by the centre of the EU in Brussels. Katrina is currently back visiting Australia, and we're delighted to have her share her insights with us here. Katrina, thanks for joining us and welcome to NAB Digital Next. Thank you, Brad. It's really lovely to be joining you and it's really wonderful to be home. I can relate to that from my own days as an expat, uh, absolutely. And indeed, you've had a very interesting journey through your career, both in some of the prior corporate roles you've had and also your prior work as a founder. But then I'm really curious if you can talk us through a bit of your journey towards where you've got to in founding Miko. The journey did start for me in financial services, so my background um, in Australia was working in financial services, wealth management across strategy, product innovation, product design. And um, I guess it's it's a decade ago now, one of the things that I was noticing is that we were creating these amazing financial products for customers that they needed at a point in their life when there was a major life event, you know, getting married, having a child, a, a serious illness, moving house, inheriting money. And on the other side, customers had these life experiences where they needed financial products, but we didn't seem to be able to find a way for those two things to connect. So we weren't close enough to the customer during the time of a life event to be able to be helpful. And when customers had these situations, they didn't have an understanding of how to navigate products and services for that help. And it seemed like data or know your customer, and I don't necessarily mean that as in know your customer from a KYC point of view, but just knowing the customer seemed to be at the heart of that. So what I realized as we were moving more and more towards digital channels is that it just seemed there was a huge opportunity if you could establish that trust for some product innovation around the personal data space. So that was really the beginning of the journey. Um, and if we go back a decade ago, the World Economic Forum, BCG, were, were publishing some really interesting reports that are still very relevant today, looking towards um, a digital future. Of course, this was without understanding that a pandemic was a decade away and, and how much will transform. But that was really what got me started. And just this idea that we we had seen such amazing uh, breakthroughs from a from a B2B perspective in terms of integrations using technology or you know APIs between organizations that what we considered at the beginning the API of me the ability for a customer to bring their data their digital identity and plug it into the organizations they trust it seemed it seemed like a good place to start and I guess you know a lot of what you've just described there was where, you know, I think you were probably ahead of the game a decade ago, and it's a, a path that a lot of others have tried to tread since then. But it does strike me that with some of the initiatives that you've actually brought to market at Miko, that you're having success where a lot of others are still struggling. Can you tell us a bit about the Miko business today and, and what you're most focused on? Look, I think, Brad, there's no question we were early. We were too early in terms of, I, I remember when I read those reports, you know, I woke up thinking, oh my goodness, this is this whole market's going to explode tomorrow. And so I think we were early in terms of um, underestimating some of the infrastructure pieces. So I'll come back to that because you're right, you know, we're finding the market is very different today to, to where it was then. And there is that need and, and there is that traction, particularly in Europe. And, and we can talk about some practical examples. Um, but I think the other 
you know, the other point in terms of being early is that there there was a lot of innovation. There were there was a lot of experimentation between then and now in terms of not just getting product market fit, but understanding use cases and understanding the different regulatory environments. So what we're focused on right now is embedding our technology um, with partners or what we call trusted custodians. So typically our partners are financial institutions, government, telecommunications, and we have an API platform that enables our partners to give their customers access, control, and the ability to exchange their identity and their personal data. So we we never read, mine, we don't monetize the data. It's a black box to us. Um, our technology is privacy by design and security by design. So we provide, if you like, the infrastructure for that holder um, or custodian financial institution to be able to give their customers a lot more digital autonomy, but also to really have their back as a custodian in terms of making sure if anything goes wrong, they're able to really help that customer. The framing you use there of digital autonomy, I think is a great way of putting it. And it's one that we might hold on to and, and come back to. You spend time not only in Belgium, and I was privileged to visit you and, and some of your team earlier in the year, but also in the UK. And and these are each markets that from an Australian perspective, we look to we look to both of them quite heavily. The UK has been the pioneer in open banking and a lot of what we've done on the consumer data right has you know, in, in large part followed that example. The Belgian It's Me identity solution, I think is another great example where banks and others have stepped forward. And of course, you know, you are at the center of the EU and the commission and, and we have EIDAS2 currently in progress. We're always interested from an Australian perspective as to, to what we can learn from. What really stands out for you amongst the the developments and the innovations that you're seeing in those markets at the moment? There's so many great threads there, Brad. Let's make sure that we pick up on sort of the regulatory, the it's me, particularly with Connect ID here in Australia. And if I go back 10 years, if I had a, you know, a magic wand and, and could do everything all over again, I think the thing that was missing a decade ago was the business innovation around standardization and trust frameworks. So putting, if you like, the business infrastructure in place or the commercial rails for um, a new digital economy. Having said that, most of the standard groups that we've been part of or contributing to, we have been doing that for the last decade. So it's been bubbling away. So I think one of the one of the major accelerators now, say compared to a decade ago, is that we have this convergence of standards. So you mentioned the new EU, the new EIDAS regulations. We've got clarity in terms of um, that as a pan-European initiative. We have the emergence of trust networks. So we, uh, we should talk a little bit about EPSI and what's happening in the, in the university credential space. And what we also have is these networks of collaboration. So you mentioned It's Me. So It's Me in Belgium is... Um, uh, a mobile ID, the partners in that network are the major banks and retailers. So not dissimilar to, to what Connect ID is doing. Um, and that's been a major accelerator for things like KYC and onboarding and digital identity and interacting with the government. So anytime I need to interact with the with the Belgian government as a as a resident, I'm I'm able to use my it's me digital identity to log on to services. But what's really important there is that hard work of getting competitors together. <laughs> 
into a common framework, into a, a common set of rules, not unlike what we understand uh, as a credit card model. You know, your your credit card, your your Mastercard works because your Visa card works. You know, this ability to be able to have this common infrastructure, and I think that's that's really the critical accelerant. Once you start to have those rails in place, and once you start to have those trust frameworks and that clarity then there are all kinds of things that can be accelerated. And we're starting to see that in Australia. That's the exciting thing about this trip here is that we're, we're starting to see those early shoots. And I think there's an opportunity for that to take hold really, really quickly because Australians are great adopters of technology and we're fast. When we see a good idea, we move quickly. Well, and I do want to come back to to pick up that point further with you as well. Yeah, you know, we had uh, the Norway Bank ID CEO Avend on uh, on Nab Digital Next a couple of months ago, and he certainly emphasised that the the single biggest success factor in Bank ID in Norway and in Sweden, I think, has been around being able to get those banks that naturally compete with each other to actually have them convalesce around a standard and actually be able to collaborate through those networks. So you're, you're very much underlining the same success factor that he'd identified. You know, where we find ourselves right now in, in kind of the evolution of service providers and technology is that we're, we're using sort of last century ideas of who the, co the competition is. And so banks see each other as competitors when, in fact, you know, the biggest competitors to a financial institution is Google, is Apple, is, you know, maybe Samsung and their innovation of what they'll put into their secure enclave or what Apple is able to do by just changing its privacy regulations. And so I think part of the mindset, the problem is, is that these cooperative networks provide a much greater opportunity as custodians and, and from a cooperative point of view, and that I think we get hung up in terms of this competition. And that's not to say that a bank or a retailer or a telco doesn't want to be able to differentiate in terms of customer service, customer experience, or a great way of customers being able to engage. That doesn't change. So for instance, KBC, one of the banks that we work with in Europe has consistently won best banking app in the world, in Belgium. So they've really been able to differentiate on that customer experience. But they are also members within this It's Me network. And I think if we don't try and find a way to harness that cooperation, then everybody loses. And in particular, the customer, because we know that Samsung, Apple, Google, they're not constrained by those concerns, you know, that their their innovation and their evolution is really determined by what they decide. It's it's not it's not hampered in the way that financial institutions are from a regulatory point of view or customer value proposition. And so we're kidding ourselves if we think bank to bank that's where the where the competition is. I totally agree. And, and maybe if we can draw a couple of those threads together, you've alluded there already to one of your important partners uh, and a great leader in KBC Bank. But also, you know, I think you're also alluding to the preferences of customers that they don't want to, they don't think of a bank perhaps distinct from each of the other different sectoral boundaries that might be across as they intersect across their lives. The customer thinks of everything in an inter interlinked way of the different services that they use. It's their data held across each of those different verticals. And I think, you know, some of the initiatives that you've been pursuing 
Uh, one that really strikes me is the the digital student card with KBC and, and Howard University. And that seems to me to be sort of emblematic of this, you know, providing connectivity and interoperability so that in the user's hands, they can get to multiple places through their own single front door. Am I thinking of that the right way in terms of how this initiative with Howist and with KBC and the, the digital student card, what that means for a, a student and, and for the university? So, Brad, I think there's a couple of important building blocks that we've already touched on. So before we, we talk about where that ends up as value for the customer, the bank customer, let's step back. With EPSI, the European Blockchain Services Infrastructure, you have those foundational pieces. So that's investment. The EU has invested in saying there needs to be a common infrastructure. There needs to be that trade, that, that trust framework. There needs to be a set of rules. And we need to make it as easy as possible for educational institutes to onboard as issuers into a trusted network. We need to be able to incentivize verifiers to be able to trust those credentials. And then we need uh, holders, the, the, the students, to be able to have some trusted way of being able to receive those credentials and share those credentials. So listeners can, can uh, find out more about this. KBC, we're very proud to announce they were the first bank to provide a holder wallet for a connection into Howist University. So Howist is a university in Flanders. It's a technical university. Um, their curriculum includes fintech subjects, Web3. So they were really interested to be sort of at the forefront of this evolution, um, this digital evolution to be able to give students access to their student card and then their university credentials. We're very happy that our technology um, sits behind that holder wallet, but the innovation is um, instead of a student needing to have a different app or a different wallet for every university or for every course they've studied is there's this common infrastructure. So they can actually go to a trusted custodian that provides that holder wallet. Um, in this case, it's KBC Bank and they're able to receive through that common infrastructure, their university credentials. This is designed as a pan-European solution. And so, you know, the aim of this is if you've studied in one part of Europe and then you're working in another part of Europe, you're not gonna be hampered by that cross-border ability for you to bring your education and, and um, some of your curriculum proofs with you. Um, so this is a great step forward in terms of building trust in the education system and, and how you credential in your professional life. But it's also a fantastic innovation to see financial institutions taking that role of, of from the holder wallet perspective. And I think that point about credentials on a you know, pan-European or indeed on a broader cross-border basis is important. And in a country like Australia, where we are in large part a migrant economy, it is important to be able to have that connectivity for people that have had their credentials elsewhere and being able to have those recognised here. And it's a piece that we want to make sure that we're keeping a, an eye on as we progress with our developments. And we will include uh, in our notes attached to this episode the uh, references to the the piece on the Miko blog um, where our listeners can learn more about that example. But I also noticed uh, that the, K the KBC referred to this student card as something that's stored in the My Trust box within KBC Mobile. And I'm intrigued by what I think is probably a very deliberate choice of language with that. And when you and I last spoke, I recall you making the point that we quite often use labels like wallets, which 
can be at times misleading perhaps, where you suggested that what we're really talking about is the utility or a value that we get from a secure container. And I was wondering if I can get you to elaborate a bit more on on the nuance perhaps around that language and, and what we really mean with a secure container. If we're using that language, we would be going much faster right now. I think one of the problems is the word wallet is really is really holding up things. And I think a part of that, and, and you would understand this from a banking perspective, is that you know there's no question there's the wallet wars right now. You know whether or not that's in the operating system of the major OS coming from Apple or Google with payments, and there's this kind of form factor when we think of wallet as opposed to secure container. And it's really important to understand if we use that word wallet, you know wallets is the evolution um, and the replacement for apps. It's the next customer channel. So when you think of container, you could have wallet type capabilities embedded in your car key, your refrigerator, your coffee machine, your running shoe. Um, And so when you think of the word container, secure container, what you're able to do is then decide, well, what are the capabilities of that container? And payments might be one of them, absolutely. But it could be the ability for you to exchange um, or earn or redeem loyalty to offset carbon, to receive your verified credentials, to operate in some kind of trust network. And when you think about a form factor that provides, first and foremost, security, the ability one would hope to do some person binding and then be able to derive identities from there. So if it's my coffee machine automatically ordering my Nespresso pods, you don't need to do high KYC for that. But you may want to know that that payment or that um, loyalty redemption can be traced back to an identity that you can trust, that it is bound to somebody or or there is somebody that's authorized, you know, behind that. So that when we start to think of secure containers, then we've got this ability to think about, okay, um, is that going to sit inside the existing bank app? Um, Would it be embedded in a web portal? Would it be embedded in a device? So we have a lot more flexibility. And I think what it does is I hope, I really hope it reignites the possibility of innovation in the customer channel and not being hung up by what's happened sort of in the payments channel when you think of the word wallet from a payments point of view. Because I think if we don't do that, then certainly for financial institutions, certainly for telcos and and, and um, retailers, is that it's going to be very difficult to compete against Apple and Google around that customer experience unless that channel is reclaimed in some way. So I think it's it's a really critical way of thinking about customer experience, customer acquisition, customer custodianship and, and customer loyalty. It's a great challenge in terms that you pose to us there in terms of the, the mindset that we bring. Maybe if we can bring that together with one of your other themes you've alluded to around supporting infrastructure and standards. And you've already referred to uh, EBSI, the European Blockchain Services Infrastructure. Wonder if we can explore a little further around the, the particular use case of what you've done with Howist, Howist University and KBC, both in terms of EBSI and in terms of the European Digital Identity Wallet. How does that string together? 
Well, the great thing about EPSI is it, it sets out real clarity in terms of what conformance looks like. So, you know, there are a set of rules that help you understand whether or not you can conform as, as an issuer. There are a set of rules that allow you to understand how you would join a verification network. And then there is some technical re requirements, and that's the part that we focus on, that enable that infrastructure to sit within an existing, say, financial institution or, or uh, service provider. And so what you have is you have the commercial, you have the legal, and you have the technology prescription, if you like, as to what conformance looks like, what interoperability looks like, what happens when you have conformance and interoperability, then you have scalability. So the big difference is it's created clarity. I mean, it's been tough. And if you talk to anyone that's been working on EPSI, you know, it's it's years of hard work under the bonnet. And then as we start to see these use cases like KBC coming forward and saying they'll provide the holder wallet or how we're saying, you know, they'll be one of the, the first in um, Europe to say, okay, we're going to start this process. And I think if there's any learning to this, Brad, and, and certainly for things I've noticed since I've been home, is this experimentation, POC, small-scale pilots, um, testing interoperability. These are all fantastic starting points, but they're also really important accelerators for what will eventually be a full-scale strategy, you know, to roll out to customers. So it's so what EPSI's allowed is a number of things. First of all, that clarity in terms of conformance and interoperability. Secondly, the building blocks to get started. And then third, the ability to step back and say, okay, well, how are we gonna differentiate or shape our strategy as either an issuer in this network, a verifier in this network, or provide that holder infrastructure in this network? Katrina, I think you alluded to this a little earlier in our discussion around, if looking at the EU from afar, here in Australia, it, it does seem that they are consistently trying to set up the standards for an identity ecosystem where there is the opportunity for that interoperability, as you just put it, and the opportunity for public and private operators to coexist within that. It's almost It almost enables a modularity uh, in terms of what each player can bring in and be able to interoperate. Is that fair comment? And, and if it is, you know, I presume that it hasn't always been easy, smooth sailing along the way and that there have been challenges along that journey. Uh, are there particular learnings that we should be really conscious of from that? Yeah, look, I think there are a number of things that we're seeing. Um, and funnily enough, we're not sitting here in Australia with with kind of war on our doorstep. But one of the things that's really shaped and changed things a lot in the last year, 18 months around the review around the EIDAS 2 has been what's been happening in Ukraine. You know, the amount of movement of people out of Ukraine, refugees, highly qualified people, particularly, you know, in the tech sector, and then their ability to sort of bootstrap and start life again. So part of the change of narrative that we've seen in the EU is the government feeling that it has some, at an EU level, it has some responsibility to support not just that freedom of movement, but the ability for people to be able to prove who they are really quickly, resettle and trust. And so there has been some discussion that the government felt that they allowed too much of that to the private sector. And hence what they're trying to do with EIDAS is now make it very clear that there is this common framework and there's this common standard of interoperability that supports physical freedom of movement and now this digital freedom of movement. 
However, it recognises that you don't want the government involved in everything you're doing with every service provider. So again, those building blocks have to be there for the private sector to be able to say, okay, here's where we connect in and then here's where we separate so that we don't have a situation where customers are paying or citizens are being tracked in their life as a customer. So we have more focus on the responsibility kind of from a democratic perspective. What, what do we need to do for citizens? And then we have this pragmatism. We have to see whether this is going to work. I mean, this is quite academic at the moment. Okay, if we put that infrastructure in place and that trust is there and citizens have their basic rights fulfilled, can we also build an ecosystem of services around that? So we're, we're in the middle of that experiment. You know, we've got much more clarity around now on EIDAS2. And the wonderful thing is organisations like the Open ID Foundation, the Open Wallet Foundation have been very successful in getting things like W3C, verified credentials, the MDOCs, the MDL driver's licence standards, some of these building blocks are now going to be part of that, which absolutely will be accelerators for the private sector to be able to collaborate with this trusted capability. Still, citizens are often very uh, suspicious of, of their government and government overreach. So there's always going to be this fine balance between how can I rely on my government to do something to protect me? And then once I have that, what freedom do I have to interact in other parts of my life without that being, you know, reported back. So we still have a fine balance, I think, in some in in some areas to work through. And I think that's a debate we're going to see a lot more in Australia over the coming year now that the, the federal government's digital identity legislation has been published. And you know, I think we are going to see that challenge or that balance between, on one hand, the efficiency and productivity benefits that digital identity can bring balanced with at the same time, there will be people that have concerns of it from a surveillance perspective or the fear of big government. And and it is crucial, I think, in terms of overcoming that, that we're delivering choice and that there is the ability to uh, choose different verifiers, different identity providers, and, and that there is the customer consent uh, at the centre of that. So it's great to see that a lot of what's been shaped in Europe is is potentially providing the framework and the standards the different players to come forth and be part of that? Look, the consumer choice, there's no question that's the differentiator. Um, that That is really critical. And and again, if I if I think back to 2018, we published a, an extensive white paper for anyone that's listening. It's extensive zero knowledge proofs of the modern digital life. So we looked at access control and delegate, delegation of consent for identity and personal data from the perspective of, of progressive disclosure. So this ability that there is this trusted custodian that is an anchor for my identity, but that I can progressively disclose things about me within a use case that don't require me to hand over everything at, you know, at, at first go. And I think there's so much innovation and opportunity. I mean, we framed at the time as drive by, tell me more, transact. We all know what it's like to drive by the window or walk past the window of, of a store and look and think, oh, I'm really interested. How much does that cost? I, I like that product or service. The idea that you would have to do full KYC to look in the window is crazy. You walk into the store and you pick that item up and then you ask about it. And then it's not unreasonable at that point that you might be asked some more questions. You might be challenged around you know, your method of payment, for instance. 
And then there's that final part, which transact, where you're actually requiring to hand over, you know, a financial instrument or or fill out an application or something. And there is a lawful basis to say, okay, we're about to deliver this product or service to your home. We need to know where you live for the delivery, or we need to check your your ability to pay these four installments. I think if we step back, there's the innovation opportunity. How do we get drive by, tell me more, transact? And coming from financial services and having worked in compliance for a long time, we front load the compliance. We ask so many questions that we create a compliance burden. It then becomes costly to offer a service when in fact, a customer's just looking in the window. And if we can find this balance between looking in the window, what's the minimum? So I need to know you're over 18 to look in this window or purchase this particular product or have access to this service. Um, So therefore, I have the right to sort of challenge you around a particular set of attributes. I've satisfied that it's okay. Now I want to transact and I want that customer experience to be as great as possible. And and again, I think we were early and we, we focused on the idea of banks working together, telcos working together, that common infrastructure. If we can get that right and we can get drive by, tell me more, transact, then the opportunity for innovation in Australia across our own state borders, I think is pretty exciting. Well, Katrina, every time we speak, uh, we end up being constrained by time and I could happily listen to you all day. But to close, perhaps, uh, if we can just pick up that final point you made there about the opportunities in Australia. You're an expat who's been back here in Australia for a few weeks. uh, And as such, I think you're quite ideally placed to be able to hold a mirror up to ourselves here. What has struck you most during your trip, uh, especially in the digital economy, and and how do you see our market evolving in the future? So I think we're we're a huge physical country, but we're a small population. But we do have that hyper mobility of you know living in far north New South Wales and working in Queensland, you know studying in Victoria and then taking a job in New South Wales. So we have to solve kind of this cross border or this movement. So again, I think, um, you know, I I make no bones of saying that I think financial institutions are really well positioned to be able to enable that sort of hypermobility. I'm really pleased to see what is happening with Connect ID. I think, you know, you've been involved in, in spearheading some really important foundational pieces recently that that we've spoken about. I heard you and Dave talking about it on, on your recent podcast. So there's a plug to everyone to listen to that again. But I think the important thing is things are taking shape just in the same way that um, things are in Europe and other parts of the world. However, taking action, I think would be, you know, if there was a call to action, it's take action. What does the POC look like? Where do customers have pain points? What does cooperation look like? What is a small scale pilot getting started with some of those practical things? Because we all know working in a large institution from strategy to in the customer's hands can take a couple of years. And so I think the important thing is, okay, what does 2026 look like? What are customers asking for in 2026? okay, what do we need to do today to make sure that that customer value proposition is in place? 
That's a great finishing note there, Katrina, and, and indeed in the digital identity design sprint um, that NAB's been convening with our partners across the industry and uh, and in, in government and academia, we've been face, facing into exactly that question. And I, I really frame it as, firstly, what do we need to do with a three-year horizon of 2026, but also perhaps with a, a notion of futurist methodology, you know, what does it look like in the, the second and third time horizons beyond that? And how might the evolution beyond wallets and thinking about secure containers what does that look like perhaps in the second horizon and, and perhaps also what does quantum computing look like for the encryption that we have and what's that mean for the third horizon? I think it's a, a great eye-opening set of experiences and lessons from Europe that you're really highlighting there for us. If I can take a moment perhaps just to, to call out a couple of things that I thought really stood out from your remarks. Firstly, I like the framing you used at the outset of digital autonomy. And, uh, and if I can follow your lead where you plugged our recent episode with David Birch, it actually reminded me a bit of what Jason Arundala Davis uh, of Hold Access described on another episode with us talking about it from the Indigenous community's perspective, where he used the phrase digital self-determination. And it is, I think, across all sectors of the community uh, about respecting that autonomy and empowerment of, uh, of all of our citizens and, and customers. The It's Me example, glad we got to talk about that, and, and it's probably one that we should spend more time on looking at in Australia, given the, the lessons for Connect ID, but you certainly highlighted there the needs of, of standardisation of the tech and convergence of standards, and also that point about the collaboration between what are otherwise competing banks uh, and how we make it easy for issuers and users alike to be able to onboard. And you likened that also, I think, with the emergence of trust networks, as you framed it with, with EBSI. The point you made about secure containers, and I think that's um, a bit of the vernacular that we need to reflect on here. And as you said, it, it makes us probably think differently about the so-called wallet wars. And it does help to broaden horizons as to how we might think and where we might look to embed the identity or the credential. And you also made the point there around how do we bind the identity to a real person, which increasingly in a world of bots and generative AI is a, a challenge that we're going to need to stare into a lot more. So thank you, Katrina. It's been, I think, a bit of a whirlwind uh, tour as, as it always is. And there is so much more that we could talk about, but you've given us some really great insights there of you know, lessons that we've seen and uh, and what we can look to and, and the great work that you've been doing at Miko. So thank you. Thank you, Brad. It's been a pleasure. And ahead on NAB Digital Next, we'll continue the discussion. I'm going to speak with Ivo Yenik of the World Bank's Consultative Group to Assist the Poor. He's going to join us from Washington, where he's been doing a lot of work on financial inclusion using some of these same technologies. And uh, he's going to tell us a lot more of the insights of what they're looking at across uh, a global scale. So please join us again then. Thanks for being with us on Nab Digital Next. Mm -hmm.